Hi guys, welcome to Jules and Phoebe, the bi-weekly pop culture and social commentary podcast brought to you by yours truly, Jules and Phoebe. Hey Phoebe. Hello Jules, happy Monday. <laughs> How you doing? I'm good. I mean, it's Groundhog Day. It is what it is. I know that some people are opening up. I did actually, for the first time in literally a year, go out for an impromptu meal with my husband at the weekend because things have opened up in the UK for people who are listening internationally and you can eat outside. So we've obviously eaten in restaurants over the past year, but it's either been somewhere local. So we've kind of made up our mind to do it or we've had to have made a booking. But this was a situation where we just walked past somewhere and we were like, should we just have lunch here? So obviously I just got like quite drunk because I was so (laughs) over the moon. I was like, I'll just have one more glass of wine. (laughs) Making small talk with everybody else in the dining area because I was just so excited to be out and doing something. But yeah, that's that's pretty much everything from me. What about you? Yeah, so we started going out as well, which is good. But... I think now when I'm out, I'm a bit more um, aware of other people. Mm-hmm. And like, if they're sneezing or if they're coughing or if they're a bit weird, I think it's really opposing now. So it's not as enjoyable. That's such a good point. And we've obviously said before, anecdotally, that you and I are very fixated on cleanliness and like scrupulous bathers and everything like that. I am now even more skeptical of other people's cleanliness than I would have been before because I would have been a big handshaker. I would have often done that like in meeting clients or like colleagues or whatever. When I was introduced to someone, I would always be like, hi, nice to meet you and shake the hand. And now I'm thinking, oh, never again. (laughs) Yeah, never again. Not interested. And there's been quite a bit published about how personal hygiene has gone completely out of the window with the pandemic. And so I'm not interested in touching anyone But there are a couple of things because we are moving back to a bi-weekly schedule. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much to everyone that listens and supports this podcast. We do have to go back to a bi-weekly schedule for a while. So we missed out on talking about this last week, but I would like to pick it up this week, which was everything that was happening with this tech company called Basecamp in the US and the CEO saying that they couldn't have political chat on their internal communication platforms. Love to get your point of view on that. And then also just the recent elections in the UK. So starting with Basecamp, I actually know very little about this. So I'd be interested to get a little more colour from you on that story. But interestingly enough, we obviously had touched on this a couple of episodes ago with talking about politics and the light on LinkedIn and how people often make the argument that LinkedIn is you know, a professional networking site. So it shouldn't be about your political ideations or whatever or ideology it seems a step further again to have a CEO explicitly ban that talk Mm -hmm. and who is that supposed to favor ultimately like who are you doing that for are you doing it because you yourself are right wing and you think a lot of your workforce are left wing because obviously there are shades of gray in there but those are two camps that people tend to fall into what side so basically with base camp for 10 years they kept a list of customers names that they found weird or funny (gasps) no and these names were predominantly foreign names and they would mock and laugh at the names of their customers and this list was 10 years old 
So with everything going on, with this push to kind of move to more anti-racist culture, people started to question this list, mm-hmm. right? And then that is kind of what kicked off a lot of the discussions that were happening around diversity and inclusion internally. It's very, very problematic that you would keep a list where you would mock the names of your customers, right? I was really shocked by that. And so with all of this going on and there being more conversations around diversity and inclusion internally, the CEO shut it down and said, I don't want these conversations to be happening on base camp platforms, right? I don't want you to be discussing this at work. Not only that, they also took away a bunch of benefits, right? So a bunch of like paternity leave and a bunch of benefits that they had at base camp. They also took away those benefits. And then with all of this going on, there was a huge walkout and employees have been leaving in droves. And then on LinkedIn, you have people saying, hey, if you work for base camp, we're hiring, come work for us. So, you know, these guys are not losing sleep about finding new opportunities, so the discussion has been, and it didn't only happen at Basecamp, it also happened at Coinbase. Are you familiar with Coinbase? I'm not. I'm familiar with the company. I'm not familiar with what's happened. So yeah, it was so it basically- at Coinbase about a year ago where the CEO basically said the same thing. And so for those of you that don't know, Coinbase is a platform where you can buy cryptocurrency. And they recently went public and had a so-so IPO. I think the reason why these things blow up is because with tech companies or in the tech space there is this whole movement around bring your authentic self to work be yourself at work we give you these great benefits so when somebody takes a stand is like I'm taking away your benefits and I don't want this conversation at work it's really a shock when it's impacting people don't expect the rights of and I, I really like this term when I heard it it's called the laptop class people don't expect the rights of the laptop class not the rights, but they don't expect the perks to be taken away, right? They don't expect their voices to be restricted in the workplace. And it's interesting that you make that point, because the thing is, within these kind of tech-heavy spaces, on the one hand, they're very innovative, and innovation is baked so much into the culture that you've got a lot of creativity. You sometimes have like quite flat structures where people can move about internally with, with a lot of ease. But Numerous studies have shown that actually these spaces are also predominantly male, predominantly white, predominantly middle class. And I think sometimes there's this perception that you can tick the innovation box. And that also means that by default, you're ticking the diversity box as well. Not that diversity is a box to be ticked, but that people will think, oh, we're doing enough on that front. And I'm interested in it because there's this generational thing as well, where, you know, you don't talk about your vote. And my parents would have been very much so of that mindset when I was growing up, that your vote was sacrosanct. Like you didn't tell anyone who you were voting for. It was between you and the ballot box. And that was it. And I always think it's interesting that this generation and the generation below us will speak very openly about those sorts of things, except if you are right wing. So there's an echo chamber that exists for the liberal left, for example. Obviously, as the elections in the UK showed more people are either lying and saying that they're voting Labour or or left than actually are, or these echo chambers are so specific anecdotally to myself that I just don't seem to be encountering anybody. Like nobody I know, to my knowledge, 
is voting conservative. But obviously, that is not accurate. (laughs) Yeah, but do you think that people should be allowed to have those types of conversations at work? Because from a LinkedIn perspective, you were like, oh, well, it's LinkedIn. And I could see why people would not want politics to be discussed or personal topics to be discussed on LinkedIn. And that's just an online platform. So what about, you know, in the workplace? So I guess, and I, I, when I listened back to that episode, I could see how I had misrepresented myself because it's not so much that I don't think that people should speak about those things on LinkedIn, but I do understand that sometimes people don't because they are afraid of the ramifications. And so what I don't think should exist are the ramifications. Also, there's a difference fundamentally in talking about politics You can talk about politics in so many different ways. And I think the best anecdote that I can provide to contextualize this better for me is when I was in university in a group of friends and the boyfriend of one of my friends was Baha'i, which to my knowledge is a a kind of a, a branch of Christianity. So he was always very live and let live and everybody's entitled to to do what they want. You're not going to help because you don't believe what I believe, this kind of rhetoric. And we were in a group, it was, we were talking about marriage equality. And somebody else in the group who was a friend said, well, I don't have a problem with marriage equality, but I don't think that same-sex couples should be able to have children. I think that that's just wrong. And this guy, the Baha'i guy, was like, well, he's entitled to that opinion and he should be able to, to share that. And so when I think about stopping conversations around politics, I'm like, well, if my conversation around politics is to make things equal and more open and more equitable and egalitarian for everyone, I think that I should be able to have that conversation. But if your version of a politics conversation is how poor people are benefit scroungers or whatever, let's extend it, black people are fundamentally untrustworthy, then yeah, I I don't think that you should be able to have that conversation at work. But the problem is there's no nuance to the statement, don't discuss politics on a work platform and so I'm interpreting it from my viewpoint where it's like well actually no the type of politics that I want to talk about I should be allowed to talk about it at work but you on the other end of the political spectrum from me may think well that means that I should be able to talk about it as well and your conversations are potentially a lot more damaging than I perceive mine to be. Yeah you know I don't think that the work collaboration platforms should be like Facebook I do think that Facebook is quite triggering, which is why I don't really go on Facebook anymore. I don't think they should be like Twitter. I think they should be in compliance with the values of the business you work in, the code of conduct of the business that you work in. I think that people can share contrary views and still be respectful. And I think you should especially be conscious about that in a working environment because, you know, people are not your mates. You don't know enough about their lives or their backgrounds But I do think that there should be a space for people to talk about what's going on in the world. When Sarah Everard was murdered, people were really shocked about that. The leadership in our business, they sent a note saying that, no, this is really shocking, you know, and thoughts out to her family. I think that's appropriate, right? Because this was a really big thing that was going on in the UK. I have no issue with that. I have no issue with when, you know, you've got the George Floyd case, You know, we had Stephen Lawrence Day in the UK a couple of weeks ago. And when leaders acknowledge these things, I think it's positive. And I think it should move the culture, like just people and humanity 
a bit more forward. But then, of course, I don't feel threatened by any of those things. I don't feel threatened by any of that. And I don't see why somebody would. So I might have a blind spot, right? Because I don't see why anybody would take offence with somebody saying, we see what's happened with Sarah Everard. You know, we want to send our our well wishes and our condolences to her family and then maybe highlight some organisations that do work in that area. Mm -hmm. So it's really, really strange. And I think maybe that is because, like, I am a liberal person. There's no shame in my game. (laughs) Like, I'm quite happy about who I vote for, even though I know that the majority of people I work with don't vote for the Mm -hmm. same party that I vote for. As a company, you have the right to say you can't talk about this on our platforms. You have the right to say that. So, you know, the CEO of Basecamp didn't break any laws. Is he losing talent now? Yes, there are consequences, right? But he did have the right to say that. Coinbase have the right to say that. If my organisation wanted to do that, great. That's fine. They have the right to do that. And then I obviously have a choice as an employee. Do I still want to work there or not? But it's crazy when you talk about politics, right? And it's usually equality. It's political, And then it's always the groups that have power that are the ones that are threatened. But you have all the power. Why does this threaten you? Because I think it's the perception of power as a finite resource. You know, you mentioned having these conversations pushes us as a society forward. But if you don't think that that is how it works, you're obviously going to be like, well, if I give an inch, they'll take a mile it's safer for me to just not allow these conversations to take place, to not proliferate or propagate an environment where people feel empowered to speak about these things. Because yeah, even in the examples that you mentioned there, you know, Stephen Lawrence, George Floyd, Sarah Everard, I agree with you. I know that politically I'm quite aligned with you. So we're only thinking about these in terms of, well, what kind of progressive political conversations could be going on and what could people be having a problem with but as we've seen kind of time and again particularly over the past year where I think it's been ramped up quite a lot some of these political quote-unquote political conversations could actually be about it being called the China virus you know what I mean and so that on a technicality could be construed as a political conversation, but I don't think that should be going on at work. And this is where the actual solution to this problem is to go one further and to segment what you consider to be a political conversation, right? Because what gets to hide under the guise of being political is quite often just racist or misogynistic or classist. Yeah, exactly. And you've got this situation where the Olympic board have basically banned any Black Lives Matter logos or they don't want to see Black Lives Matter at the Olympics. And they were talking about this on The View and the the Olympics have always been very strict about being apolitical. Mm -hmm. And it's so funny because Meghan McCain, like I, I feel she has such a great point of view where she was saying that okay, you want to be apolitical, but like there's going to be an Olympics that are taking place in China and you've got Uyghur Muslims that are being killed and like exterminated in China. But then you're talking about a Black Lives Matter logo. The world that we live in now, there's too much information for people to stand on the sidelines and say, oh, that's okay. Yeah, you can't condone it and condemn it simultaneously. 
you can't and that's the thing and I think as generations get younger I think it's going to be more and more difficult to separate the world which is basically what politics is is anything that's happening like in the world from their day-to-day lives because work is not a vacuum all of those external issues impact your experience in the workplace if you're keeping a list where you're mocking customers what are you doing to employees that have names that you consider sound funny absolutely what kind of an environment are you creating do people who wouldn't be otherwise inclined to kind of exhibit that behavior are they feeling that they also have to put a customer's name forward because otherwise, oh, I'll be perceived as not much fun and then that's not good for me either? Like, are you potentially rewarding this problematic behavior so that people feel obliged to take part in it? That's another yeah. component to this whole thing. Yeah, I know that people have really toxic work cultures, but I was just surprised that they would mock customers because usually, like, you love your customers. Totally. But I have had, I do remember, though, going on, like, meetings and I've heard people mock customer names before. So I don't know why I'm acting shocked. That's so wild to me because it's not something that I personally have experienced. And it's one of those things where whether you're working in retail or whether you're working in tech or financial services or whatever, if you have a difficult customer or client, yes, of course, it's going to be something that you say, like, that person was not nice or that was unpleasant, whatever. But... It's almost like don't critique anything that someone can't fix in less than 30 seconds, right? So, for example, if you've got lipstick on your teeth, I can tell you because you can quickly fix that. But if what I'm making fun of is your name, there's no positive repercussions, right? Like, it's so strange. I just, it's just not something that I get. I just don't get how that's fun. And I do think that there's a level of classism to it as well. Like there's a level of classism and racism where they kind of intersect because you don't have the the right kind of name. And also you potentially, I mean, I don't know enough about this to have seen the kind of names that are being made fun of, but you don't have the right kind of name and you don't have the white kind of name. And (laughs) the kind of overlap there in that space, which is kind of, where you're punching down and I think that that is just it's just not a good look I it's not a good look like it's so cringe it's really not a good look but I think it's um it does highlight the fact that people don't realize how judged people are by their names and there's so much information out there like there was an article that came out and it was saying how the top UK law firms the partners of these law firms had about five names and it's like John, Peter, Paul, they literally all had about five names and 80% of them had these names. Well, that is so interesting that you say that. One female name in there. As you were saying that, I was thinking something that we were doing recently in one of my lectures and basically talking about that split second bias that comes into play. And one of these studies, one of these articles was talking about how in top investment banks, a decision will be made about your tie and the color of your shoes immediately. So like brown shoes, you were done before you even opened your mouth to speak in the interview. If your interviewer didn't like the shoes that you were wearing, like brown Oxford, say, or didn't like that your tie was too garish, you were off the list. And- but at least getting in the room to even have an interview for them to look at your shoes and your tie. 
Totally. But what this kind of article was then discussing is that the obvious problem that you have there is even if you have been, again, quote unquote, lucky enough to get to interview stage because you've overcome all of those other implicit biases, right, to get to interview stage, not everybody has a wardrobe full of suits. Not everybody has, you know, 50 different ties to choose from and so if it's been enough of an effort for you to get your foot in the door and then a decision is made about you because of the wardrobe that you can afford that's horrendous as well and when I think about when I started working in the city I worked in recruitment for a year before I moved into the kind of industry that I'm in now I didn't have a clue how to dress. I had no concept of like what was appropriate. I was 21. I had no money. So it was like my interpretation of what office appropriate attire was, which was not very appropriate. But obviously being white and having a name like Phoebe Cotter, it meant that there had been no initial barrier for me to overcome. So I was able to come in and like wear my stupidly short skirts or my little tight blouses or whatever because I thought that that was just what office wear was (laughs) yeah it's it's really when you think about the amount of barriers that people have to overcome it's really unfortunate and so that's why I'm not up for people to be in a workspace and we spend so much time at work and for their voice to be taken away again I'm not saying it's up to our employers to like empower us but I think that if you have got the appetite to speak about things that you're passionate about if you can mobilize people if you can drive change and have an impact in a way that is positive in your working environment I think that you should be able to do that but I am like a liberal person do I want somebody to be banging on about how patriarchy is great yeah Britain first (laughs) not really (laughs) I don't want to hear that at work. So maybe I get why people don't want to hear about gender equality and, you know, anti-racism at work. You know, it's probably the equivalent of like Britain first to me. Yeah, that's it, isn't it? There's no middle ground a lot of the time or there's no nuance afforded. And it's hypocritical of me to be like, oh, well, it turns out I only believe in freedom of speech sometimes. If you're politically aligned with me, then I believe in freedom of speech. But otherwise, sit down. (laughs) Yeah, but the people that I've met who are alt-right and who have no interest in the EU, I've met those people at work. You know, I'm on the opposite side of the spectrum to them. They share their points of view with me. I don't have an issue with it. I do feel like there's a way that you can express yourself where it's not a personal attack. So those views were shared with me. Those views don't pay my bills. I was like, oh, if if that what you're about, okay. And then I moved on. I think there's a power in that, though, because I have to say that when I find out that someone, it's too much of a sweeping statement, say, when someone isn't aligned with me politically, because obviously not everybody. There was a study, but there was a study, and sorry, guys, I don't have the study, but I do remember hearing this on a podcast, where people who are liberal are more likely to reject people that are not politically aligned with them. That they go on a date and then they find out that this person is Britain first, they're out of there. You know, if their friends end up marrying someone that's Britain first, they're out of there. You know, if they're in a working environment like the base camp situation, they're done. Whereas apparently people who are more right wing are less likely to kind of 
cut people off that are not politically aligned with them? Well, I'm exhibit A because I honestly can't stand it when I find out that someone is super right wing and I find it difficult to get past it. And when I started my current job, I'd been there for about a week and we were as a organization, we were out for drinks and some guy told me that he voted Brexit, but that it was okay because his grandparents were Italian. So he'd be able to get his Italian passport. And I get thinking, don't say anything. Just don't say anything. You've only been here a week. Just, just don't say anything. But obviously I was like, oh, I think you're incredibly selfish. Like what you did was make sure that you had a, a safety net. And then you voted against the interests of other people because you knew it wouldn't affect you. And yeah. I still side eye that guy. <laughs> <laughs> so many people that you would not expect voted mm. to leave. And we're still experiencing the repercussions of it, right? I do want to talk about the mayoral elections that we had and the local council elections that we just had in the UK. I'm so happy that I voted like quite last minute. Sadiq Khan, so the Labour candidate won. I voted for the Labour candidate. People keep talking about how what Sadiq Khan has done to London. And it's so, I find it so jarring because what Boris Johnson did to London, all of, you know, homelessness grew, all of the negative outcomes for working class people accelerated under Boris Johnson and have accelerated under austerity and the Conservative government that we've got. Those are facts. But Boris being mayor of London was an opportunity for him to catapult himself into the premiership, people now vote for Boris Johnson and are backing Boris and are happy with whatever he's doing, right, as prime minister of this country. So what's all this stuff with Sadiq Khan? What are they talking about? What, the congestion charge? I also voted for Sadiq Khan, so I am also delighted. I just, I I like him. I think that he is intelligent, he's articulate, he's eloquent. I think he tries his best. I think he tries his best, exactly. And I'm just so sick. My husband said it at the weekend, and it's actually, it's so true, because we are obsessed with classism in the UK, but we also hate it. And it depends on what side of it you're coming from. We're obsessed with Boris Johnson because he is like from good stock. So we love the idea that, oh, he's so bumbling. He's so amiable, but he's an incredible public speaker because he went to Eton, as did most of the Tory cabinet. But then when you switch that around and you look at Labour, so Jeremy Corbyn was head of the Labour Party until, you know, end of 2019, Sir Keir Starmer, is now his replacement. Everyone who hated Jeremy Corbyn because he's so far left, he's basically a communist, are now in a position where they don't find themselves placated by the appointment of Sir Keir Starmer because suddenly he's, you know, landed gentry. Oh, he's he's been knighted. He's a human rights lawyer and he's wealthy. So what could he possibly know about the typical Labour voter? So it's like we hate classism when it's outside of what we prescribe something like labor to be but we love classism when it's for the tories the thing is with Keir, right i feel like this election result is a personal failure labor has had some success right so we won in london fair and square 55 percent. that's the majority manchester andy burnham absolutely killed it 
Labour won in Bristol and Labour had success in Wales. And I was online the other day, yesterday, and they said the elections happened two days ago and Keir hasn't even tweeted congratulations to any of the candidates. And when you look at the people that did win, Andy Burnham especially, because he absolutely just annihilated mm-hmm. competition in Manchester, he won because he has stood up for working people. He has stood up to what the Tories are trying to do. And that's what people want. You know, I feel like if Keir Starmer had that energy... I'm not even going to call him Sir Keir Starmer anymore because I'm, I'm done with that guy. He's the guy across the street. If Keir had that energy, I think that he would have a lot more support, right? And the biggest drama that happened is that the Labour Party lost Hartlepool. Mm-hmm. Hartlepool is a constituency that has been Labour since it was invented, basically. And then they were going to Hartlepool and they didn't even know who Sir Keir Starmer was, right? And so... It's such a failure of leadership. And then to manage the situation, he's he has kicked out or demoted two women, two senior women from the Labour Party. So it's such a mess. It's a mess. And, you know, I wanted to give... Um, two senior women from the north of England. And, well, and also in the particular case of Angela Rayner, a woman who was a mother at 16 and became an MP five years ago, had a rapid rise, basically, within the Labour Party. And I'm not bringing up her having a child at 16 to be dismissive. I'm saying it as she's clearly worked hard. But it felt to me that in her demotion from chair of Labour Party, it was a punishment and she was scapegoated. And I yeah, don't she understand why. She was completely scapegoated because... Something has to happen. Heads have to roll. Mm-hmm. And Keir's not man enough to say, I'm not the man for the job. Well, and also, I just think from a, a completely strategic perspective, right, we, we spoke about the royal family and we acknowledged, listen, they're a corporation. They're a business. They're not just a family. With the Labour Party, what is needed is some consistency. And this is such a lay person's perspective. Like, I'm sure that there are people more erudite and more informed on this topic than I am. And they're listening and they're going, "Mm, that's not the crux of it. But equally, it has been an exceptionally hard year. Starmer has only had just over a year as leader of the Labour Party. It would be permissible to say, I am working out where the line is. I'm trying to tread a fine line. I'm trying to, but I have faith in my constituents. I have faith in the other members of my party. This paranoid reactionary reshuffling makes me respect him less than if he had just said, listen, we obviously need to take some time and think about what our voters want from us and what we're failing to perform on. But this kind of, again, tick the box exercise of, well, now Angela Rayner is not going to be chair anymore. So that should placate you all is offensive. Yeah, it's completely offensive. I've got no respect for Keir Starmer. He's taken no decision. He has no vision. And I've got no respect for him. And the people that did win, they won because they were backed by their constituents. It's got nothing to do with Labour. Like, it's not trickling down. Like, I vote based on locally what makes sense. I've got a great MP in Hammersmith. And I'm just like, mate, you better have a succession plan. I need to write to him and make sure he has a succession plan. So I'm not put in a moral quagmire where I feel like I can't vote for Labour and what the Tories are doing. I feel like representation is important, but I'm not so 
obsessed with identity politics that I vote for people just based on what they look like, right? But the Tories have struck gold with having a cabinet that is as diverse as it is, right? And it has come out, you know, with the, the Labour leaks and everything that the party is racist, the party is anti-Black. Yes, they were going on and on about anti-Semitism, but I think they were just using that as leverage against Corbyn. I don't think they really have any commitment to racial justice in any way. And so they're losing a vote that they thought they had in their back pocket. You know, if you look at what happened with Sean Bailey, I look at Sean Bailey like he's a joke, but the fact that he could win 40 plus percent of the vote in London shows that a core part of the Labour bread and butter voters voted for Sean Bailey. Yeah, and I don't know. It's so weird because what I struggle to understand with this, right? So uh, we're obviously based in the UK, so we talk about UK politics and we talk about US politics a lot because it dictates a lot of the micro trends that then happen globally. The US is a pendulum which does tend to swing from one to the next, one extreme to the next, or one party to the next in, in the softest possible terms. We have had over 10 years of Tory-led austerity now. And that's what I don't understand. That's what makes me feel like, get me out of this country. Because in the past 12 months, we've had Tory ministers voting against free school meals for children. It was Marcus Rashford, a footballer who himself had free school meals, who advocated all the movement behind this. We had... Tory government ministers, again, voting against pay rises for NHS workers in the midst of a global pandemic. And there was a huge spike in NHS nurses voting Conservative this time around. But why? I don't understand. My husband was literally like, the only rational explanation for this is that we're wrong. We're missing something. Conservative country, no. This is a conservative country, right? We've we've had 10 years of this. 10 years plus of austerity, but we've only had like five Labour governments since the Second World War. There haven't been that many. It is a conservative country. So I think that's something that we need to accept. And things like the referendum, like I wanted to remain in the EU, but I respect that the referendum did not go that way. The fact that Labour would put a Remain MP up for election in Hartlepool, which is a leave constituency is outrageous like you have to be able to read the room and understand what people want or you're not going to be able to lead them and can you be a small c conservative country that is decent <laughs> like genuinely that is the question isn't it? i don't see labor winning in 10 years and i actually don't see it in 20 if they carry on this way. And also because the Labour elites, sorry to cut you off, but the Labour elites, like those London elites, they want a new Labour. They want a Tony Blair Labour and it's over. That party's finished. But the thing is, if they actually did want a Tony Blair Labour, Keir Starmer is the perfect candidate. He's centrist. He's yeah, but that's what the elites want, but that's not what the Labour voters want. That's not what the Labour voters want. But and they feel the they have voters- to vote. So they're like, okay, well, I'm going to vote for the other guy. It's a, I hope it's almost a protest vote. Yeah, I mean, that is, that's the only... People are more against Labour than they are for Conservatives. 
I am literally asking everyone listening to this podcast to send me a suggestion of where I can look to live instead. (laughs) I just, I find it so demoralizing. I find it really unfortunate. You know, we live in, we live in a nice area. We live in North London and we live in the borough of Haringey. And the borough of Haringey has basically both ends of the, the spectrum. We have some of the poorest areas in London. We have some of the poorest literacy areas in London. And then we have a couple of the richest suburbs because there's Hampstead and Muswell Hill. And it makes me feel so sad that we can all justify voting against things like free school meals for children and pay rises for healthcare workers. I don't know, it just doesn't make sense to me. And I, I struggle it's to make borough. sense of it. What's your borough? Is it Labour or is it Conservative? We're Labour. Okay. Hammersmith and Fulham, they basically um, redid the, the voting lines. Mm-hmm. Because we had like really, really affluent parts of Fulham and then you've got some poorer parts of the borough and then they basically rejigged it so that they could go off and like be conservative and be happy. <laughs> and then, so now we, we, we are, we've always been a Labour well, borough since I've, I've been voting. But that's going to change because you're going to have a lot of traditional Labour people that get kicked out. You know, if you are an essential worker, you cannot afford to live here. OK, so this is my other thing. My husband and I were talking about this in the sense of, again, being disillusioned, being demoralized. And um, I just said as well, the things that I love about London, the culture, the vibrancy, the the diversity. If London continues to be homogenized, and I know that there are people listening to this podcast that aren't based in this area, but the analogy extends to other cities. If we keep leaning into this small C conservatism, which then trickles into large C conservatism, you've got uh, an homogenization of culture. You've got the the creatives and the the youth that can no longer afford to live in cities, which make cities worth living in. Mm. And, you know, supposedly about 1,300 people a week leave London. And I understand that that's it. Yeah. And that's a a drop in the ocean, I know. They go to to either other countries or outside the city. Yeah. Because they can't afford to live here. Yeah. But you do feel it now. Mm. The divide between rich and poor is becoming like quite extreme. Obviously, nowadays, we don't have those city walls, right? Yeah. <laughs> but in 20 years, like, if you're not part of the laptop class, you're out. Well, that's it. And also, I feel like this is a love letter to London. A love letter to London, a love letter to Labour. I'm like... Pull it together. <laughs> yeah, pull it together. But I just don't see it because the leadership is so arrogant. They are so arrogant. And it's like, you're not going to win being Tory light. They even readjusted their membership fees, hoping that they could attract more high net worth people. But if I'm high net worth and if my values don't align with Labour, first of all, we don't even know what their values are anymore, right? Why am I going to ditch the Tory party to come over to this weak side that doesn't make any sense and so that's why you have to kind of really acknowledge like the Tory party have done something right they've done something impressive and I guess to finish this episode on a question I would be really interested to hear what people listening think are you a disillusioned Labour voter are you a Tory voter extending that globally to the different geographies that listen to us (laughs) are you 
left wing are you right wing are you becoming disillusioned with left wing are you yeah and coming disillusioned with the left like globally yeah i mean uk and us i'm like i'm just like yeah what are you guys doing so yeah we would love to hear what you guys think you can find us on instagram find us on tiktok try and cheer phoebe and i up because it's it's dark (laughs) it's dark times over here and i'm also being completely serious as well i mean I would love your recommendations. If there is anywhere that is a little bit more utopian or at least less dystopian than the UK right now, I would love recommendations while I reevaluate where I'm planning on spending the next 10 years of my life. <laughs> don't leave me. Do you know that meme that it's like, don't leave me? Yes. <laughs> you don't want me to leave the UK because you're going to be stuck here. Suffering, exactly. Please don't leave me. But yes, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. And yeah, that's it. (laughs) Share the podcast with a friend and we will see you in two weeks time. Bye. Bye.